Blog Talk Radio. Yes, yes, yes. It's the Car Session Sports Report. I am back, your host, Javi. Football Monday, let's get right into it, man. I think the biggest news for me personally coming out of this weekend has got to be who stole Aaron Rodgers' ability to play elite-level quarterback? Right now, I, I've gotten the luxury of seeing him the past couple of weeks on national TV. You know, I've been listening to the reports. I do a lot of reading, but I got to see him firsthand the past couple of weeks. And I got to tell you, Aaron Rodgers looks pretty average right now. And I, I hate to disrespect the man and put that label on him of average, But when you really look at the throws he's making, or in this case, missing high, low, too far in front, a little bit behind, timing completely off, you really have to take into account that Aaron Rodgers is simply not himself. You see him on the sideline staring into the distance. I'm big on body language. You know, I'm I'm not like a counselor. I'm not a shrink. But I've been watching football long enough And I've been watching sports long enough to know when an athlete isn't feeling right, his body language tells the tale. Physically, he's fine. But mentally, he's not feeling right. Something is off in Green Bay. I'm not here to give a hot take or anything like that or or feed the masses with, 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 you know, echo chamber Aaron Rodgers doesn't look right. But for the football fans out there who watch the game, who have been watching this man his entire career, we know when A.A. Rod is on point. We know when this man is hitting on all cylinders. And right now, he's not playing the level of a backup, but he's playing the level of average starting quarterback. So now the question is, what does Aaron Rodgers have to do to get his game right? We saw just a week ago the people were ready to drive Eli Manning out of the NFL He's old, he's falling off, this and that. We, we heard everything about Eli. This week is going to be Aaron Rodgers. And honestly, the same way, the same way Eli bounced back against the Ravens, more on him in a second, is the same way I believe over time Aaron Rodgers will bounce back and do what's necessary to get his game right. But I have a question for you guys, you know, because, you know, when you think about it, Aaron Rodgers and his slightly pedestrian performances it's stretching into a second season. This is what week six is officially in the books, right? So a season and give it take a third. You want to say, all right, he didn't have Jordy Nelson last season. Cool. Jordy Nelson is back. Jordy Nelson looks like Jordy Nelson, so you can't use that as an excuse. I'm starting to wonder if things need to be shaken up in Green Bay. I'm not one to call for coaches' jobs who don't coach my teams. You know, I cheer for the Lakers. Byron Scott had to go. I cheer for the Giants. Tom Coughlin had to go. When it comes to McCarthy, I'm not necessarily sure that he deserves to be fired. But when you, when you look at the way the Packers are playing the game, they kind of don't have that intensity. You know, the offense looks stale, to be frank. Even with the running game, Eddie Lacy has some co- a couple of good games here and there. But generally speaking, from my, from my vantage point, the offense looks stale. I'm beginning to wonder if it's time for a change in Green Bay in terms of, you know, this stale offense needs to be spruced up. There needs to be a new approach in Green Bay. 
to figure that Aaron Rodgers knows everything there is to know when it comes to this offense, all the nuances, every, every in and out when it comes to the offense that he runs in Green Bay. He knows it. So maybe the monotony is catching up to him. On top of the fact that you really don't have a monster on the outside. I'm going to be fair. I'm not trying to get anybody fired. But when you look at the Packers receiving core, you know, it's Jordy Nelson, it's Randall Cobb. Randall Cobb isn't anything special to me. He's a good piece to have. He's versatile. But he, he, defenses aren't afraid of Randall Cobb. Defenses are moderately afraid of Jordy Nelson, but part of that is due to the fact that he's a white man playing wide receiver. You know, I'm going to keep it funky on car sessions. I've always done that. I will continue to do that on car sessions. But, uh, Maybe Green Bay needs a weapon. Maybe it's time for the Packers to go out there and get Aaron Rodgers a very useful target on the outside. Maybe someone who can legitimately take the top off the defense. Not a bunch of possession receivers who play within a 15 to 20-yard radius, but a burner over the top that can inspire Aaron Rodgers to get his swagger back. Because he throws one of the prettiest deep balls in the NFL, but with the players that he has right now, he doesn't get to flash that deep ball. He's thrown a bunch of quick slants, a couple of back shoulder fades here and there, a couple of dig routes, some out routes, but he's not pushing the ball 20 yards down the field. We're not seeing the deep posts. We're not seeing the deep outs. We're not seeing the, the post corners. We're not, seeing, we're not seeing the seam routes, the bombs. We're not seeing any of that. What happened to this Janus dude? He was supposed to be the next big thing. Turns out he's a schmeg. So when you look at the Green Bay Packers, my question to you guys, I'm starting to believe personally that I think the offense is stale. Is the offense stale because McCarthy needs to go, or is the offense stale because they need a, a big play guy to, to, to create new opportunities for the rest of the players? Because when you have a big play target on the outside, that really then frees things up for the intermediate game. If I'm a defense and I'm coming in and I'm not concerned with the deep ball, I can sit on the intermediate route. We saw the Giants just a week ago. They, they, they struggled tremendously in Green Bay on that Sunday night matchup. But they were able to stay in the game because Green Bay wasn't able to, to land a knockout blow. They weren't able to take the top off the defense. They had to settle for those intermediate routes. And after a while, much like we saw with the Cowboys yesterday, they would rush for and sit back. And when you have to throw those short routes, it's impossible to, to complete a high level of those short routes when you have six to seven guys dropping back in the coverage. You get what I'm saying? So if you have a big play receiver who you have to respect, who you have to put some respect on, that opens things up for Aaron Rodgers. Maybe Aaron Rodgers is bored throwing these dinking dunks. You know, when he won the Super Bowl, he wasn't dinking and dunking. That's not what he was doing. He was airing the ball out. He was putting a lot of pressure on teams. He had a tight end. His name escapes me at the moment, but there was a tight end who was coming into his own, and he had concussion issues. You you had a um, Greg Jennings. I think Jody Nelson was already that You had really viable targets. They didn't have much of a running game, but because they could go vertical, they were able to shine. So I believe that it's not going to happen this season, but in the offseason, we're talking offseason in October, but yes, when you look at the Packers roster, in the offseason, whether it's by way of free agency or whether it's by way of the draft, they need to get a wide receiver who is about 6'2", who is a little physical or a lot physical and can take the top off a of defense. You need a beast out there. Aaron Rodgers needs a beast to be successful at this point in his. People think Aaron Rodgers is still young. He won the Super Bowl back in 09. People, that was seven years ago. And he waited about, what, three years before he got a chance to start? Aaron Rodgers is a vet. 
Time is of the essence in Green Bay. You can't waste away his prime years with average receivers and one allegedly prime receiver in Jordy Nelson, who's good. He's really good, but he's not a stud. You know, he's not a stud. Aaron Rodgers knows he's not a stud. The whole NFL knows he's not a stud. Most of us watching outside of Green Bay knows he's not a stud. Aaron Rodgers needs a stud on the outside. So if I'm the Green Bay Packers, get him that stud. I'm not writing him off. I think Aaron Rodgers is going to turn things around. His passes are going to be a lot more crisp. But when it's all said and done, it's going to be tough to run offense if your running game is all right with Eddie Lacy and your passing game is becoming void because the windows are so tight because they're dropping so many in the coverage. How is it that they're not able to take advantage of all these coverages by running the ball? If these guys are dropping six and seven back, you're supposed to bludgeon them with the run. They're not capable of doing that. So Sutton needs to give. Give him his receiver, and you will see Aaron Rodgers do big things in the future. This year, he'll figure it out physically. He'll figure it out mentally. But he won't be able to do major things because defenses, the book is out on Green Bay. They know how to defend them. And unless the running game figures some things out later in the season, pretty pedestrian going forward. On the other side of the tilt in Green Bay, yesterday, we had a quarterback, you know, shining. Dak Prescott for the fifth consecutive week. You could even say the sixth consecutive week because they didn't lose to the Giants because of him, has showed out on the football field. Salute to Dak Prescott. I'm very impressed with what I'm seeing. Before I continue on, I need to tell Dak Prescott one thing. When you get interviewed and they, and they ask you about playing in certain venues and what it means and everything like that, I need you to stop referencing the SEC and playing in LSU and playing in Tuscaloosa. Cut the crap, bro. All right, those are big venues, but that's not the NFL. That's not the big show. Stop talking like the SEC is the NFL. It's not the NFL. It's not NFL quality. And I would appreciate it if when you get interviewed by Aaron Andrews and everybody else who are those sideline reporters at the end of the game, playing in the SEC, and you weren't even playing. All right, you played some big games, but you weren't, like, at an elite program. You weren't, you weren't Alabama, Auburn at its height. You weren't Ole Miss. You were in Texas A&M, Johnny Manziel era. You were at LSU when LSU was good. You played at Mississippi State. So you weren't really checked for like that until maybe last season. So when they ask you those questions off the rip, I need to get that off. Stop referencing playing in these stadiums. You played in them stadiums, yes, but the eyes weren't on you the same way they were on you as the star quarterback of the Dallas Cowboys with that star on your helmet. All right. I had to get that off because that really got me upset as a pro football fan. The nerve of him to, to compare college experiences to playing in Lambeau Field. Cut it out, man. But anyway, you know, six consecutive great performances, and it's getting better when it comes to Dak. It doesn't hurt that Zeke Elliott is balling out of control, which is making it even easier for him to shine. It doesn't hurt that he's playing behind the best O-line in the NFL, which is making it easier for him to shine. But the fact remains is that he's not out here screwing it up. He's not crapping the bed, and he's and each and every week, Dallas, the pass game is looking better and better, even without Dez, because they're they're more comfortable letting him put the ball down the field as opposed to dinking and ducking. He's he's not taking massive amounts of the shots, but they're trusting him to make throws when they need him to make throws, and that shows you that the coaching staff sees that he's improving on a week to week basis. So now the talk is, and everybody's heard it to this point, who is going to be the starting quarterback 
for the Dallas Cowboys when Tony Romo gets healthy. Just a week ago on car sessions, I was talking about the fact that we cannot allow, we cannot allow, we cannot allow Jerry Jones to to ruin this Cowboys season. He made a comment and then he went about, you know, backtracking up the comment in terms of what's going to happen when Tony Romo gets healthy because he was he was quoted as saying that Romo would get his job back, but then he backtracked because he sees like everyone else sees that this is Dak Prescott's job. And it shouldn't go to Romo. So I guess I let the cat out of the bag there. I believe that Dak Prescott should be the coach. Should be the coach. Should be the quarterback. <laughs> Maybe he should be the coach too. Yeah, I know I don't respect Jason Garrett. But anyway, he should be the quarterback. You have a good thing going. Essentially what they're doing is mimicking what they did two seasons ago with Tony Romo, Daz, and DeMarco Murray but to a lesser extent because they still trusted Romo to make throws that they don't trust Dak to make. But for the most part, Romo had his least amount of passing attempts in his career. They ran the ball like nobody's business. They won the NFC East, and they were a drop pass away from the NFC title game and had a very impressive win in Seattle along the way during the regular season. What they're doing is they're emulating that performance from two years ago. To, on, on a slightly dumbed-down basis because the offense in terms of the passing game isn't there yet. So if you got this going, you won five straight. You haven't won five straight by the skinny teeth. You've won five straight in a very impressive fashion. Why would you want to mess things up? You know what I mean? Why would you want to mess things up if, if you're running the Dallas Cowboys? Dak Prescott hasn't shown you anything to where you need to worry about him regressing. He's getting better. All right, we're going to have film come out on him pretty soon, and that's going to be the test. But it's been six weeks. How much more film do these coaches need? He's protecting the football. He's mobile. He's physical. But he's not trying to take hits. He knows when to get down. He knows when to slot. This guy is a cerebral quarterback. And on top of that, he has Zeke Elliott. So at no point in this season will he be asked to do more than he's capable of doing. He'll be always in a position to where he can make the right decision. I'm not going to say he's going to be spoon-fed, but it's going to be a situation where they will never ask him to do more than he's capable of doing. And if they're winning games and the defense is playing above his head the way the defense is playing in Dallas, why not? Why not? Why not? Romo's the brand name. I get it. But you know what? It's something about the Tony Romo era in Dallas, fair is fair, that things haven't worked out for Dallas. There's always been painful losses or head-scratching defeats that left Dallas fans wondering, yo, what do we got to do to win a Super Bowl? So maybe this good karma that's in Dallas is because the football guards have, have kind of ushered the Romo era out and, and have horseshoed, excuse me, shoehorned the Dak, Pros, Dak, the Dak Prescott era. His, his name is so hard for me to say. Dak Prescott, I keep saying, I want to keep wanting to say Dak Prescott. His name is Dak Prescott. But the football guys have shoehorned the Dak Prescott era into Dallas. So why fight it? Embrace it. Embrace it. What do you got to lose? Huh? You've already lost for the last 20 years with the exception of a few winning seasons here or there. Why not? Sometimes you have to embrace change when change is dropped in your lap. You can't fight something sometimes. You got to just let it fall in your lap and appreciate it. You went to the strip club. You didn't expect to get the lap dance. She showed up and she said it's free. You take the lap dance. 
If you're a lady and you, and you went to the mall and you got some free shoes, you're not going to question the free shoes. You're going to keep the free shoes, right? Fellas, you go to the gym, you go to Foot Locker, they had a sale that you didn't know about, buy one, get one free, you got a free pair of kicks. You're not going to question why these kicks are free. You're going to take the kicks, am I right? You go to the restaurant, they say this plate is on the house, you can accept the plate of food. So if I'm the Dallas Cowboys, why am I fighting a good thing? Let the Cowboys do the right thing. If I'm running the Cowboys, if I'm Jerry Jones, Dak Prescott is the quarterback. Quite frankly here, I'm going to say this now, and I want you all to put me on record. I think the countdown to Tony Romo becoming a New York Jet has begun right now. Really, I said it a couple of weeks ago, but I'm on record because I didn't say it on the air. Now I'm officially on record for y'all to hear. The countdown to Romo in New York begins now because this is the Jets MO. Quick tangent. Of course, why not? Tony Romo becomes available. They got Fitzpatrick over there. He's not doing anything good for them. They need a quarterback. They believe that they're a quarterback away from doing big things. Romo, of course, Romo's made of glass. We get that. We get that 100%. But at the end of the day, Tony Romo, he has to go on and he has to go to a city, you know, that will give him an opportunity to play for a championship. I'm not a big Jets supporter at all, but when I look at the Jets roster, the one thing the Jets are missing this year is a quarterback. If the Jets had a quarterback, they'd be in the playoff conversation right now. They'd be probably at the top of the AFC East. Let's be frank. The receiving core they had, the defense is still solid, the running game is solid. All they need is a quarterback who won't give the ball away a thousand times like Fitzpatrick has done. So the countdown to Romo to the Jets begins now. Also, look out for Jay Cutler. One of those, one of those useful starting quarterbacks will become a Jet. But back to Dallas. Dallas, it's a good thing. It got dropped in your lap. Keep it. Don't question it. Don't besmirch it. You went to the jewelry store. They got some free earrings. You don't ask the jeweler why they're free. You take the earrings, you walk out. It's found money, Dak Prescott. You're walking down the block, you find $20 on the ground, you pick it up and put it in your pocket. You don't walk around the neighborhood asking if somebody found $20. You were just 20 up. Now you're going to be 20 down. You are 20 up with Dak Prescott right now. Keep that man and go forward, and good things will come for you. This is a giant fan saying this. So you know that I'm keeping it funky right now because I could bash Dallas all day like certain other pundits do, but I'm going to keep it funky. Dallas will be better off and better served with Dak Prescott. Speaking of the New York Giants, Odell Beckham Jr. Eli Manning can't play. Odell Beckham is a diva. The Giants' offense is broken. Blah, 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 blah. We saw some flashes. We saw some flashes in Green Bay. But finally, the Giants offense that everybody expected showed up in week, eight, in week six of the NFL season. It took you long enough. All right. So, you know, I'm going to get this out of the way because there's haters everywhere. There's people who always have things to say. They're going to say that the starting quarter, cornerback for the Baltimore Ravens got hurt, and that's when Odell Beckham got off. That's true. But it's also lazy. At this point in Odell Beckham's career, his third season in the NFL, he has cooked 
every cornerback that's in front of him. So if you think now that the cornerback of the Baltimore Ravens getting hurt was going to stop him from shining, you, you, you got to cut it out. You got to cut it out. Oh, my, my man Rhodes in Minnesota, he did his thing. He stopped Odell. He locked him up. Bruh. Bruh. Seriously. Seriously. If at this point Odell Beckham hasn't earned your respect as a wide receiver to where there has not been a cornerback who's locked him up for an entire game, then you'll, he'll never gain your respect. You're just a hater. But the first thing I want to point out, one of the big things I need to, t- to point out is the fact that it took my man, Mr. McAdoo, six weeks to figure out that you need to move Odell Beckham around. I saw Odell Beckham all over the field, and we saw a piece of that in the Green Bay game, you know, a little bit in the backfield, a lot of bit in the slot. You saw more of that, but even more so in the slot. They gave him company on his side of the field as opposed to leaving him and feeding him to the double coverage and being used as a decoy. They moved him around. They kept Cruiser Shepard next to him on number 82. His name escapes him because I didn't know who this man was before he caught the touchdown yesterday. But they kept people next to him, or they kept the tight end on his side of the field, you know. They ran a bevy of routes. Eli Manning, his checkdown game was immaculate yesterday. He, he audibled into both touchdown passes. You know, so all this talk about Eli and what he's capable of doing and what he's not capable of doing, Mr. Manning did his job. That's a fact. Eli Manning did his job. He made the right calls at the right time. Odell Beckham is finally being used properly by the head coach. You know what I saw yesterday, guys, that I've been crying about on the New York City pod and on a, on a sports report pod here? I saw a couple of screen passes, dig routes. I saw little short passes to, to put the ball in Odell's hands and give him an opportunity to make a play. That was missing the first five weeks of the season. If these guys are so afraid of Odell, it's rare, you know, and when they, you know, you have guys who try their luck and they want to play press man. But then when the cornerback is sagging off and giving him that cushion, throw the screen. The Giants, you know, I don't know if it's some of that Tom Coughlin blueprint that's left over with this new era, this new regime, but the Giants are so big play happy that they always want chunk yardage, and they haven't fully embraced the fact that there's three to four to five yards to be had on every offensive play. The defense is always willing to give up something to take away another thing. But the Giants under Eli Manning's regime as quarterback have never really embraced that. I don't know if that's just not in him. I don't know. But when you ran the run and shoot that they ran with Gilbride for nearly his whole career – it, it was funny and puzzling reads, and the receiver and the, and the quarterback have to be on the same page when in terms of reading the coverage, which led to some of the most puzzling interceptions. People don't know that about Eli Manning. A lot of Eli Manning's interceptions that with people, you know, they call them head scratchers, is because he's reading one thing and expecting the receiver to do something, and the receiver was reading a lot of other things, and he was never in the spot. So when it would look like, why is Eli throwing this? Because the receiver and he was supposed to be on the same page, and they weren't. This offense is stripped down and simplified. It's not a bunch of read and reactive. No, Eli has the power at the line to make the checkdowns, to, to make the audibles, to do what's necessary to keep the ball going forward. I would just like it if they more and more and more embraced those short passes, how they use Odell Beckham. But you have V. Cruz. You have Sterling Sharp. Use those guys to get those three to four to five yards per play. If on first down you get three to four, on second down you get three to four, you, you'll be dealing with a lot more third and shorts as opposed to third and six, third and seven, and third and eights 
is high-efficiency offense, and that's the one thing the Giants need to embrace. And it, it looked like in the second, you know, the second half of the second quarter into the second half of the game, they started to embrace high-efficiency offense, little dinks and dunks to keep, to keep the defense, the opposing defense on the field. And once those opposing defense defenders realized that, yo, they're dinking and dunking us, and they started to creep up, then you saw the double move by Odell for the monster touchdown. Then you saw the goal route where the safety was a second late because he was so concerned with what was happening underneath. So the Giants need to do more and more of that. And if they do more and more of that, the Giants will be highly, highly, highly successful the rest of the season. But that's a big if when it comes to Eli Manning and the New York Giants. Again, I'm a Giants fan saying this. I got to keep it funky. My team is very schizophrenic. One way, they're this way. Next week, they're going to score seven points and get obliterated by the Rams. Who knows? But that's just the way the game goes. Um, Panthers, man. Carolina Panthers, mm-mm-mm. From 15-1 and one in a Super Bowl appearance to 1-5 and five and looking very average along the way. I think it's time. You know, I, I you can't blame Cam Newton for the situation that the Panthers are in. He, you know, he, he had an injury, but he's played well. He kind of looks the same, you know. But my question is, now that it's pretty evident, pretty evident that they made a mistake in letting Josh Norman go. All right, maybe Josh Norman is not Superman at the cornerback position, but Josh Norman was perfect for what they did. Losing that one guy has opened up the floodgates to Carolina's pass defense. It is food. We saw what Julio Jones did two weeks ago. We saw what Drew Brees just did yesterday, spreading it out. Brandon Cooks looking all pro. Drew Brees, 465 yards or something along those lines. I think right now, right now, whoever made the decision that Josh Norman wasn't worth the money, he needs to answer for it. If it was, a, if it was the GM's call more than anything else, he needs to answer for it with his job because that one move has affected the karma of the Panthers. The karma, the, the, the Panthers big-timed Josh Norman. They treated Josh Norman as if he was a Carolina Panther creation. It was like, this is our, this is our offer, and that's it. Take it or leave it. You know, the undercurrent of that was, who, who is this guy? The nerve of him to demand X amount of dollars when he wasn't anybody a year and a half ago. Let's call a spade a spade. That's what it was. It was a lot of, it was a lot of who, who does this guy think he is in those negotiations? Who does Norman think he is? He's one of the best cornerbacks in the NFL. who he thought he was. And he thought that y'all thought he was that. You let him walk, and teams are not afraid to throw on y'all. What good is a front seven? <laughs> what good is a front seven without a decent secondary? Now you're going to say, job, a great front seven kind of negates a weak secondary. That's true. But what made the Carolina Panthers defense special was the fact that Josh Norman allotted them that extra second. His coverage a lot of times on that, the opposing team's best receiver allotted the front that extra second to second and a half to get to the quarterback. 
It wasn't like they were just bre- they were, they weren't beating the brakes off teams and blowing the doors off them in terms of their front. A lot of times it was one hand watch the other. Solid coverage in the back end allowed the quarterbacks to run into problems with the front. So that the quarterback is dropping back and his first read is available, he doesn't have to worry about what the front seven is doing because the ball is already out. You understand? If the ball is out, what good is a strong front? As a Giants fan, I always reference the Giants. When the Giants are really strong, teams started to just, you know, two and a half to three seconds the ball was out. They knew they couldn't block the, the Giants front, so why, have, why even try to do that? Just get the ball out quickly. And you're seeing that more and more with the Panthers. And once the defense gets demoralized, then the monster plays come behind it. Once they get demoralized, the big plays came. You can't blame Cam. Knee-jerk reaction right now is to blame Cam because he's the MVP and he's this and that. And I understand that, but that's lazy. Watch the games. Cam is not the fault here. The defense can't stop a nosebleed. The defense can't stop a running force, even though all, all the faucet handles work. They can't stop anything. The defense can't stop a tortoise. <laughs> the defense is here in the race with the tortoise. Yes, I'm roasting the Carolina Panthers defense because their front office and arrogance from success, from success, the disease of me that Pat Riley talks about, found his way into the front office. The, who is this guy? The, the nerve of this guy attitude that they took with Josh Norman has them in a position to where they're not going to win more than six or seven games this year unless they go on a major run and somehow find a way to play better defense. Releasing the cornerback who got burned by Julio Jones obviously didn't make much of a difference because Jameis Winston made a couple of decent throws on you guys the following week, and Drew Brees eviscerated y'all yesterday. So, if you're the GM of the Carolina Panthers, don't even wait for them to fire you. Just put your papers in, brother. Put them papers in and say, you know what, bro? I'm I sorry. I'm sorry. I, th- I thought the system was better than what it was. You know what? Sometimes the system can be great. Yes, absolutely true. The system can be great. But when you, you really got to find that person who understands that fine balance between system and talent. Was it the system that made the talent, or was it the talent that made the system? I think in this in this regard, in this question, it was a talent that made the system. Can we argue that? I think it's inarguable at this point. At least at six weeks into the season, it has to the, the argument has to be made. The talent of Josh Norman made the system work in Carolina and not the other way around. That front needs that extra second to second and a half that Norman produced, and they don't have a corner out there to produce it. I'm sorry, Carolina. One and five, looking rather embarrassing at that. Defense looking real regular. I'm sorry, guys. No soup for you. (laughs) Oh, man. Another team that caught my eye this weekend. You know, they they had a rough week going up against Big Ben in the Steelers last week, but then this week they bounced back going to Oakland. Oakland had been riding high. Oakland had been riding high. Kansas City Chiefs went in there in the ring and pretty handily took care of business. I think when you look across the board at the AFC West, you look at the teams that can truly do well. 
the most balanced team in terms of offense and defense is the Kansas City Chiefs. We already know what the situation is in Denver. Great defense, all, possibly all-time defense if they keep this up. When you think about consecutive seasons of doing this, they have no quarterback. The Oakland Raiders, all-world offense, they have no defense. The Chargers, the Chargers always seem like they're one play or two plays away from shooting themselves in the foot, even with the great Phillip Rivers. So when you look at everything in its totality, you have to look at the Chiefs and say, you know what, if there's, a, if there's a cream of the crop in the AFC West, it might be the Chiefs. All right, you know, I might sound like prisoner of the moment, but I supported my argument with balance. They play strong defense. Their offense, while it's not going to be Oakland's offense or, or New England's, they can score. And at best, the way, they, the way Andy recalls his games, he can keep his defense on the bench and keep your defense on the field by using the greatest game manager in the history of the NFL, Alex Smith. Jamal Charles, weak, you know, he, he's getting there. He's not all the way there yet and because they have the luxury of having a Chuck Kendrick West, having a Spencer Ware, having a Nile Davis. They have a lot of running backs who can shoulder the load if things get shaky for them at that position. So they can ease Jamal Charles back into the, to the fray. So that being said, when I, when I look at everything, they're the most balanced team, arguably one of the, be, the, one of the most well-coached teams, if not the best-coached team in the division and, and well-coached teams in the league. Why not? You know, the Chargers, I, I heard a stat last week on one of those radio shows that I listened to that said that the Chargers have led the most. They have, they have led the most of every team in the NFL up before they, they beat the, the Broncos on Thursday night football. And prior to that, they only had one win to show for that. So it's like you can, have, you can lead for all of those minutes, but you can't finish games. That's a problem. So it's like, but at the same time, you, you, you might have to wonder if, if they can figure it out and hold a lead. You really have to look at the Chargers as a threat. But because – it's the Chargers, and their history says otherwise. Their history says Phillip Rivers will be on the field trying to, you know, do a game-winning drive that never seems to work out. I can't, I can't give them that respect. Denver's defense is going to have a minute all year, but Denver's defense the past couple of weeks has been looking like it's slowing down. Atlanta played a pretty stout game. We saw what the Chargers did on Thursday Night Football in that beautiful color rush game. Those uniforms for the Chargers and the Broncos were delicious. I loved those. That was the best combination of color rush uniforms since this whole deal started last season. Beautiful. I kind of wish that what, both teams would keep that in their uniform rotation going forward. The Raiders can score, but the Raiders can't defend. Anytime the Chiefs score 26 points, they went up against a bad defense. The Chiefs' offense isn't designed to score more than 24 points on a good day because they're ball control, they're dink and dunk, they clock you, they fill position you. They're not scoring 26 points. So that being said, you know the defense on the other end wasn't that good. There you have it. So as of right now, week six, approaching week seven, I think the Chargers might be the team to be in the AFC West because they have the most balanced group. The Atlanta Falcons took a tough loss. You know, people want to talk about 
pass interference and all this and that. But look, bro, at the end of the day, it's one of the best cornerbacks in the world at home late in the game. They're not calling that flag. This isn't the Giants <laughs> and the Ravens where the referee calls a phantom pass interference on Dominic Rogers Cromartie. No offense, DRC can play, but he's not Richard Sherman. Richard Sherman in Seattle with that madhouse, that, that mad stadium, the loudest stadium, if, if not Kansas City in the league, the referee's putting that flag deeper in his pocket. That flag was so deep in his pocket, his back pocket almost ripped, and, it almost, and the flag almost fell to the top of his shoe because he wasn't calling that flag. So right there, people, let's not make excuses. You know, matter of fact, let me not disrespect you. I know better because I hate people use that word excuse to me. It's an event in the game. Let's not let that event in the game, that moment, that scenario dictate the outcome. Could it have been a flag for sure? But there's too many instances prior to that that where the Falcons shouldn't even have been in that situation. The Falcons made a good push, then a killer turnover killed them. Earl Thomas' interception led to the field goal that essentially won the game. Let's focus on that. Let's not focus on a, a DPI that we all know is not going to be called. Let, even if you want to say, it was a pass in the face, he grabbed us up, cool. They're not calling that. They're not calling that with Julio Jones and Richard Sherman. They, their physicality on the field was going to decide that game, not a yellow handkerchief. I'm just saying. All right, people. I've NFL'd you to death so far. Let's let's take a sharp turn away from the NFL. Let's talk a little NBA basketball. You know, real quick, got to throw it out there. The NBA preview from Car Sessions will be this Thursday. It's coming real soon. But it's not a one and done. Once that preview is out, that preview will be in rotation through NBA Premier Week. So from this coming Thursday up through NBA Premier Week, which is next week, that preview will be in rotation. So now the question is, how is it going to be in preview if the season starts? Because it's not your typical preview. I'm not going to sit down there and map out the divisions. Oh, well, Southwestern Division has this team, and I think that they're going to make playoffs. No. You've been listening to me for a long time. You've been listening to the Cossetius brand for a long time. Things are done a little bit differently. This preview, we're going to call it the haves and the have-nots. We're not going to break down divisions and, and talk about races and position battles. We're going to talk about the haves of the NBA and the have-nots of the NBA. But anyway, Carmelo Anthony, there's not enough respect being put on his name. <laughs> Slam Magazine. Ranked him 15th in their player rankings this season. And, you know, he commented on Instagram. He felt some kind of way. Stephen A. Smith threw a tantrum, you know. But uh, I don't understand what the problem is. Carmelo Anthony, I think, I think 15th is a pretty solid spot for Melo. I think the issue with Carmelo Anthony, in terms of how he feels about his position in this list, is, is, is a scenario I like to call reputation versus reality. Melo's reputation 
is that of a player who's top ten. But reality, when you when you look at his resume, you look at his impact on the games, if Melo was top ten, the Knicks wouldn't be a perennial lottery team. The past two seasons, the Knicks have been lottery teams. I believe that he might have had health issues two seasons ago, but Melo played a lot of games last year, and the Knicks were a bad team. I hate to make this lazy comparison, but, you know, you put LeBron in the Knicks, might not be a championship, but the Knicks are going to the playoffs. No? The Knicks won the Atlantic Division in the 2013 season, the 2012-2013 season. The Knicks have gone downhill ever since. All of this under Melo's watch. So what has Melo done to garner top 10 accolades? There's players out in a, in a stronger conference like James Harden who gets the, the crap into the stick a lot for his defensive weaknesses, but he, he has the Rockets in the playoffs every year he's been there. Melo's in the Eastern Conference missing the playoffs. I'm just pulling out a random comparison because I'm just trying to show you in the tougher conference, James Harden, for all, for, for all of the respect that they don't show Harden, was able to carry a team to the playoffs each and every season. Carmelo Anthony, in a lesser division, a lesser conference, failed repeatedly. Two seasons in a row at that. What top ten player is sitting at home in spring? That's a fair question. No? Is it not a fair question? You tell me. I don't think any top ten player in the NBA is sitting at home in the Eastern Conference. Paul George had his leg nearly fall off, came back, had the Pacers making noise. So you're going to say the Pacers had a better overall team. Then the NBA, if you're a top 10 all-world all-NBA talent, what you do makes up for the lack of talent, especially in the Eastern Conference. You see how I'm, I keep driving that point home, Eastern Conference. I'm drilling that into you. What top 10 player misses the, the NBA playoffs in the Eastern Conference? So you feel because your reputation as one of the best scorers ever in the league, one of the best one-on-one players in the league, you know, should, should garner you that respect to be top ten at all times? No, brother. Really and truly, if you really look at what Melo does and what Melo doesn't do on the basketball court, the game is kind of passing them by. The isolation score that is Carmelo Anthony kind of doesn't exist anymore. The multi-skilled, the multi-faceted player is what the NBA is all about. The two-way player is what the NBA is all about. The player who can impact the game with getting buckets and getting, creating shots for others is what's winning in the NBA. Not an isolation small forward. No offense, Melo. I love you. You're a Syracuse Orange man. <laughs> they always going to be the Orange men to me. I'm an old-school biggies guy. You won a championship for my team. You're on a team that I dislike, but I still love you anyway because you're mellow. But mellow. Brother, you're not top ten anymore, man. Guys can lose their mind and throw fits and tantrums and talk about respect. That's cool. That's great. That's real great. But at the end of the day, everything Carmelo Anthony has done to this point indicates that he is not top ten anymore. Quite frankly, top 15 might be pushing it. Top 15 might be pushing it at this point. Melo might be more in the 20s. I think the sports illustrated list and the ESPN list might have had him in the 20s. I'll look into that. But he's not a top 15 player to me. 
Top 15, I feel like in the East, too, should be making the playoffs, frankly. Is he one of the best players in the league when he's on? For sure. Can he ascend? Certainly. I remember ESPN had a list one year, Kobe's last great year before the Achilles, and they disrespected him. They, they had him. They had him really low. <laughs> and by the end of the season, because of his greatness, he was top six. I feel, he filled, I believe he finished the season in the top six of their list. So who's to say that if the Knicks are this super team, quote-unquote, that Derrick Rose has anointed them to be, who's to say if Melo doesn't put that team on his back that he can't move back into the top ten? I won't argue that. I won't argue that at all. Another thing that, I, that I'm ready to talk about and I'm ready to never talk about it again, I just want to talk basketball at this point, is this whole Kevin Durant, OKC, super team. Why did he go to the Warriors back in my day? Man, look. He signed with the Warriors because he had the capability to do so, as I've been preaching and preaching and preaching here. It's free agency. It's not limited agency. It's not slightly free agency. It's not let's not upset the fans, so I'm only going to go to this certain group of teams. It's not let me make it. let me make things as hard as possible for myself to win a championship agency. It's free agency. So he had the ability and the capability to do whatever he wanted to do and sign with whomever he wanted to sign with. He chose the Warriors. Like I told you all over the summer, when you look at what the Warriors do as a basketball team, Kevin Durant made the best <laughs> basketball decision, and it's not even about stacking the deck. I don't think lazy here on car sessions. It's about basketball. If you look at what the Warriors do, what they do on the courts, schematically, systemically, and what Kevin Durant is, that's the perfect fit. Kevin Durant is one of the best scorers in the league. With Kevin Durant's out of volume, everything Kevin Durant does is efficiency. Y'all forget he's you know multiple time scoring champion, but Kevin Durant, much like Chef Curry, is a fifty forty ninety guy, which means that he's getting his numbers. He's getting his numbers at a high level of efficiency. If you, as a jump shooter shooting fifty percent from the field. 40% from three, specifically, 90%. That means you don't need that many shots. That's why he was still able to be successful with the Russell Westbrook, although it wasn't a championship combination. It was a highly successful combination because Westbrook needed to be a volume shooter to do what he needed to do. KD did not need to be volume to do what he needed to do. So, of course, when you look around, at the Warriors. You look around the NBA and you pick the Warriors. It's because the Warriors move the basketball. Steph Curry, much like himself, 50-40-90. He doesn't need to take 25 shots to get 30 points. It's predicated on ball movement, player movement, open three-point shots, a 40% three-point shooter. How many times can you say that Steph Curry last season took a three with a hand in his face? We're not talking about the highlight. We're talking about in rhythm, Ball movement, motion offense, slightly triangle offense, three-point shot. You can't – you really – you know, you let the best shooter in the world 
get open shots on a regular basis. One of the second, maybe the second best shooter in the world, if not top five, Clay Thompson, a slew of open threes because they move the ball. It's all about efficiency. It's all about making sure they get the best possible shot on every possession. So, again, if I'm Kevin Durant and I'm seeing this taking place, my skill set fits perfectly. He's, you know, it's, it, I don't want to – you hear you hear the, the echo chamber about him sliding into Harrison Barnes's position, but that's what it is. He slides right into what Barnes does. And, and the thing is about him, he's not going to miss the shots Barnes missed in the NBA Finals. I got to go back to that for a second. Harrison Barnes in games five, six, and seven was five for 32. And majority of those 32 shots, open shots, y'all. Not contested shots, not low-volume shots, high-efficiency shots that were just missed. You put Kevin Durant in that same spot, literally in that same position, and you add maybe four more shots, right? KD's not missing those shots. You got Westbrook, you know, being catty in the interviews and it with the media, you know, Andrew Bogus saying that the move was in motion well before the end of the finals. If if you need to look up that, it's a uh, it's on the score dot com. You go, you'll read Andrew Bogus comments there. My man said that move was in play well before the finals was done. Actually, it was SlamMagazine.com. Look up the, the article. He said the move was in motion. So you got a lot of sour grapes across the board. Pierce talking about, in my day, blah, 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 blah. Guys are more competitive, blah, 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 blah. You know what? That might be true. I saw people being lazy, you know, trying to compare the big three era of Boston to what's happening right now, and they laid the template. They laid the template in terms of having three guys who could put a level of pressure on a defense, on a team overall, that two guys could never create. But it wasn't a situation of collusion where dudes sat around waiting for free agency and decided we're going to go here and we're going to go there. No. Danny Ainge made a trade draft, man, if I'm not mistaken, to Gary Allen. Kevin McHale gave him what we call a godfather deal where it was like seven players for damn near one or six. It was a lot of players involved going from Boston <laughs> to Minnesota to get KG in a bag of crumbs. You understand? It's not the same thing. The only template they set was the fact that by having three guys, two perimeter, one front court, or, or one perimeter, one full front court, one full perimeter player, or a person who could do both like a Paul Pierce or a LeBron James and a big, that was the template. That's it. Not how they got there or why they got there, but the basketball was the template. So if you're going to make these comparisons in the chat rooms and the message boards, know what you're talking about. Don't conflate two things that are not – you know, together. Don't don't put them together. How they got there and what they did in the court, not the same thing. LeBron got to my – to me, people keep giving LeBron the pass with this whole Kevin Durant thing. And at the end of the day, whether Kevin Durant lost to the Warriors in the finals, which he did, it was not a rivalry. They had one series, which was a great series, which – and they collapsed, they being the Oklahoma City Thunder. LeBron James became a free agent and went to Miami – along with Dwayne Wade, who was his peer, his contemporary. The only other perimeter player in LeBron James' discussion in the Eastern Conference at that time was Dwayne Wade. 
and it went with the best big man in the Eastern Conference at that time in Chris Bosh. You could argue they had three top ten players or three top eight players at that time. So even if the even if the fact that oh he didn't go to Boston he didn't do this he didn't do that he went with two of the best players in the world he went with two of the key components of the redeem team the Olympic team and played a regular season NBA team so how can y'all just say because KD went to the Warriors KD KD went to a team you could argue with less star superstar power than LeBron did LeBron went with two valid superstars. KD went with the consummate team. How are y'all missing that? He went to the consummate team. LeBron made a super team. Y'all missing the, 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 the point here. They went 73 and not because they were super nice and evil, but because they had schematic advantages and they played ultimate team ball. They had about five or six dudes who were two-way players at about six foot six or six foot seven who could do a lot of things on the court, and they moved the ball. They, took, they ran you off the court. The, the ball got, what, about three to four to five passes per possession. They got open shots everywhere. They ran you. They out-schemed everybody for 82-plus games. KD looked around and said, that's what I want to do. I want to play beautiful basketball. I'm not making an excuse. I'm telling you exactly what it is. That's what it is. That's what it is. Y'all getting caught up with all of this and listening to the narratives generated by the media, fools talking about the regular season don't matter no more, and he took the easy route and all this and that. If we've learned anything in the past of all these supposed super juggernaut teams is that the games still need to be played. There's always a team that rises up that we're not checking for who surprises the absolute hell out of us. So before you write people off and you make decisions and you put you anoint teams, and I like the way the Warriors play, but I'm not about to anoint them. I'm not handing them the championship as of right now. You know, who knows what I'll say in a few days on a preview. But you can't just hand in the championship after we saw what happened in the finals when they were up 3-1. Stop doing that. Let these games play out. And let's see where the chips fall. Of course, are they are they talented? For sure. For sure. Will they have, you know, advantages across the board with the death lineup that they had last year be death lineup or Roy's? For sure. KD's at the five. Of course. I get it. I respect your stance. But for you to act like this team or KD, excuse me, this something so egregious, then y'all need to stop following free agency. Y'all get hyped for play move, but only want certain players to move to certain teams. Cut the garbage. I'm really getting sick of this. And then y'all, y'all made this whole argument about him taking the easy route, and, oh, he would, certain guys wouldn't do this and that. How come nobody's talking about the fact that he was willing to leave Russell Westbrook? He was willing to leave having carte blanche with Westbrook to go be part of a group. Like, nobody's talking about that. He got he left Westbrook, not because he wanted to play with a super team. It's not even about that. They, they had the super team on the ropes, 3-1, and was dominating them. And it took 48 from Clay in game six for he to even get to a game seven. He ran from Westbrook. Nobody's talking about that. They so caught up in listening to Stephen A. Smith cry and rant and rave and all the tweets and all the bleacher reports and the CBS News and Fox Sports, the Skip Baylesses of the world. Uh, what's, what's the other dude's name? 
Oh, man, he, he killed my momentum right there. Chris Broussard, Paul Pierce, Charles Barkley. The list goes on and on. Yeah, busy listening to them, and nobody's thinking about the fact he was willing to go sacrifice more than he's already sacrificed playing next to Westbrook to get away from Russell Westbrook. But I'll leave it like that. We're going to get deeper in that with the NBA preview. We're really going to talk about that with the NBA preview. But, yo, it's time for the homie Eddie Sagara to come on here. You know, our last Met chapter, we talk about what we expect for the for the offseason for the New York Mets to be successful. Let's get So let's get right into that, people. It's the Eddie Cigar segment here on the Car Session Sports Report. Eddie, for the final time, let's talk a little Mets, man. What's good? Thanks for having me on, Ray. Let's uh, talk some Mets off-season yes, uh, yes, by yes. Man, it's, it's, it's time. You know, sadly, I'm not interested in talking about the Mets off-season because we should still be in the postseason. You know, we were talking off the year about the two teams in the NLCS are the two teams we beat on the way to the World Series. is like karma. It's like a slap in the face of Met Nation across the world. Yeah, I mean, you're right, though. You know, it's coulda, coulda, uh, you know, the Mets beat the Dodgers in five games last year, and then we all know um, what they did against the Cubs. Right. You know, I mean, I'm sure, the, I'm sure this year's Cubs team was happy to have a lead in this year's NLCS. <laughs> correctly, in four games, they had no lead. No lead. A complete sweep, a, a, a domination of the Cubs. And now here they are, B- big and boasting, uh, NL favorite. I got a lot of hate in my blood for the Cubs, but that's not why we're here right now. Eddie, we're going to get back. Actually, we'll get back to that in a second. But right now, what do the Mets need to do to once again make the postseason, but not only as a wild card? What do they need to do to have the ultimate success? of winning the NL East and going deep into the playoffs again? I mean, we, we, have, two, we have two logical answers. One, get your NSS for this wherever you want. Yes. <laughs> oh, I mean, the offense struggles with your NSS for this in the lineup. Imagine him not in the lineup. So that's priority number one for the New York Mets moving forward. You also need a, you need a healthy starting rotation, sure, though. Sure. I mean, you know, the Seth Ludos of the world, the Robert Gazelsmans of the world, they were revelations late in the season for the New York Mets. But can you, they have a combined 15 starts in the major league, though. Can you count on them next season? No. If for whatever reason the Mets have to re-sign up Bartolo Colon, who was your most dependable starter? He was your oldest starter at 43 years old. He's going to turn 44 next season. And he led the team in innings and wins. You know, so if he's not in the fold for next season... I mean, you need to start. You need a, a healthy starting rotation. It all starts with uh, Jacob Degrom. Right. Starts with Matt Hardy. Right. Are we ever going to get anything from Zach Wheeler? He's been out of the game for two years. Hmm. You know, he was supposed to make it back this season. He never did. Do you remember the talk was Bartolo Cologne was brought in for insurance, so he'll start. He'll start the first half of the year, and right. then once Zach Wheeler comes back. They'll just transition them to the bullpen. Yeah, that never that. happened. No. But, you know, the New York Mets have a lot of question marks going into next year, but it all starts with the uh, with starting rotation, though. You know, I like I like Robert Gisselman, or Gisselman, whatever. I think 
I would still bring back Bart, but I like Selman going forward. He, he, the Winter Soldier showed me something late in the second half of the season. He had a lot of swagger about him. He had that athletic arrogance. You know, some guys come up and they're they're timid. They nibble. You know, he got after pitchers. I mean, uh, hitters. He he didn't try to make the perfect pitch every time. He wasn't afraid to pitch the contact. And and that you know, as a pro in today's MLB, you need a pitcher who's gonna do that. Being that everybody's gonna pitch count, you need to be you need to find pitchers who are efficient with their pitches. Once he got over that whole fifth inning, I think it was like the fifth inning hump or the third time through the batting order hump, and he was able to to, to get that demon exercised. He showed me something. So I wouldn't be mad if the Mets let Bart go with the idea of keeping him or even Lugo. But I like I like him more than Lugo. Uh, to your point, we have to keep you in it. Like, there's no, there's no logical explanation for Met Brass to let him walk. There is none. Because, as you've been saying the past two weeks, the Mets offense was abysmal, period. Even with Ioannis. But imagine what it would have been without Ioannis. There would be no playoffs without Cespedes, bro. I think you could agree to that. There will be no playoffs whatsoever without a Ioannis Cespedes in the, mess, in the middle of that lineup, you know, making things happen. Those, those late late game at-bats where he would go to, go to war with the pitchers, get the hit, get the walk, get the home run. You have to have that presence in your lineup. I, but more importantly, we, we agree about Cespedes. I think if the Mets are smart, what they do is – they, they agree to opt in on Cespedes' part, and all they do is add two more years to the back end at the same money, or a little bit more. Like, what are we talking about? This, is, is that not a simple agreement? So it just works out to be a five-year, $125 million deal? I don't think I'm too far off base with that, adding two more years to the back end of his original deal. I think everybody wins in that regard. But my question to you, Eddie, we, I'm going I'm to ask you a hard question off the rip. What do the Mets do with David Wright? What, that, that, that's really the question here. I mean, that's a... I mean, that's a hell of a question, Ray. I mean, David Wright signed for $20 million a season up until 2020. You can't count on David Wright to play a full season. And he no. hasn't played a full 162-game season in about four years. Um, we were going into the season, you know, Sandy and Terry were talking about we'd be lucky if we can get 115 games out of him. Right. He played one less game in 2016 than he did in 2015 can't count on David Wright moving forward. You know, you can't talk about, well, maybe if we move him over to first base, he's not, he's no longer an everyday player. So, you know, the Mets, they have a difficult decision to make, though. I'm sure they, they I'm sure the fans in the front office like what they saw out of T.J. Rivera. Right. Do you put him over at third base next season? Do you put a Wilma Flores over at third base next season? You have options, you know. Let's not forget Jose Reyes. Oh, yeah. Like, he's he has an option on his deal for the league minimum next season. He will be back. But in an ideal world, the Mets will probably want him to be like a super utility player. You know? So you can't count on David. Do you sign it out? So, Ed, you third baseman. I wouldn't mind leaving Jose Reyes at third base for 162 next year. I'll, I'll be totally honest with you. Why not? Uh... That's tricky, you know. I mean, third base is, is a power position, you know what I mean? I mean, is, is, is Jose Reyes going to hit over 300 and still 50 bases to offset the lack of power? He doesn't have to be do that. that. He was a spark. Don't get me wrong. Jose Reyes is an absolute spark club for the Mets moving um, down the stretch. Yes. Everybody talked about Yoannis and Ashubu Cabrera coming off the DL. 
But Jose Reyes, he only hit 267 for the Amazons in 2016. True. He was a spark plug, but <laughs> over 162 games. He only played 64 games for the New York Mets this season. You know? I mean, will he be able to get the batting average up? I mean, well, I don't know. Let's say in a perfect world, you bring it back at third base. If Cabrera can produce... 75% of what he did this season. That would kind of offset the lack of power that's coming from third base, no? Uh, yes and no. I mean, uh, Cabrera probably had the second best uh, season of his career in 2016. He had 23 home runs. He did it over 280. He played a flawless defensive shortstop on one leg. You know, the guy was playing on one leg for the last two months of the season, but will he be able to duplicate that in 2017? You know, chances are he probably won't. You know, he's more of a 265, 270 hitter. Guy's going to hit you anywhere between 10 to 15 home runs. I mean, will he be able to hit 23 home runs again next season? I don't know. That's highly debatable, you know? Maybe. I mean, the Mets have a lot of question marks, though. Neil, what do you do with Neil Walker? You know, who plays second base for the New York Mets? Uh, for the New York Mets next season, you know though. I like TJ. qualifying offer. I like TJ Rivera, but I think if I had to choose, I would keep Rivera as a bench guy, utility guy, and, and bring back Neil Walker. His back concerns me tremendously, absolutely. But he's another guy who came to New York City and didn't let the city fold him. He embraced the city. So if I'm the Mets, two-year deal with a, with, a, with, a, with a vesting option for a third, you know, he can't get more than three years with that back anyway. So, or, or a team option for a third or a mutual option, and they come back to the negotiation, something along the lines where it's the third year, they need to figure something out. But I would do that. What I will do if I'm the Mets is I'll give Lucas Uzi the boot. He has got to go. Um, but more, important, more importantly, what do the Mets do with Jay Bruce? Do, do, if, you're, if you're running the Mets, do you trade Bruce and see what you can get in the offseason? If you're the New York Mets and you feel like you have you have no shot at signing UNSS for this, you pick up. Regardless of whether or not they sign UNSS or not, you got to pick up that option. Okay. Absolutely do. If your UNSS is on the team in 2017, you trade Jay Bruce. You know, he, pick, he was able to pick it up in the last, uh, last uh, 10 days, two weeks of the season. You know, you can get something for Jay Bruce, but he's pretty much their insurance, though. If your winners walk, he's your right fielder in 2017 for, for better or worse. I but think, if Joannis comes back, you just have a glut of outfielders, though. You have Joannis. What do you do with Michael Conforto? What do you do with Juan Lagares? What do you do with Curtis Granderson? You have a lot of outfielders. You know what? For only... I believe that Cespedes will be a man. When it's all said and done, they'll figure. I think, I think my theory of the opt-in with, a, with additional years added to the original deal is what's going to eventually transpire. I think uh, Sandy Alderson has shown both of us and Met Nation across the board that he knows what to do. He makes the right deal all the time. I think he'll get something useful for a Jay Bruce. But what do the Mets do in center field, man? Sess has made it clear he doesn't want to play center field. Does that mean Juan Lagares goes back to being the everyday center field? What about Michael Conforto? Like, what, what, what do the Mets do with those guys, Eddie? I don't think Michael Conforto's an everyday center fielder. Oh, no. <laughs> Michael Conforto's future in the major league level. He'll be a corner outfielder or possibly a first baseman if they uh non-tender Lucas Duda this off. He's going. He made a couple of nice 
tonight. Get him out of here. But over the long haul, he's going to cost you a lot of games with his gloves. He's there mostly for his back. Um, it doesn't look like the Mets would sign, uh, would want to sign a, uh, a center fielder. Um, okay. so it's, um, you know, Curtis Reyeson did a really good job for the Mets, uh, late in 2013, uh, late in 2016, but he's really not an everyday defensive center fielder. I mean, going into 2017 for, uh, you know, whether Mets fans like it or not, well, I'm God, that's his, that's his job to lose. He's well, a center fielder. You know, we, we're kind of on the same page with where the Mets need to go. So th- this is my last question for you. This is not even about, this is more about you now, Ed. How confident are you that the Mets will do what's necessary to put a contender on the field during this offseason? I'm very confident. I feel like these last two years, the Mets winning the pennant last year, some winning 87 games, and, you know, although they got eliminated, you know, in the wild card round. Yeah, yeah. In the playoffs in two consecutive seasons, I think, I think the New York Mets are going to be the, 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 the players, the front office, the fan base. They've never made the playoffs three straight years. They're going to be pretty motivated. You know, healthy starting rotation, though, they had something special. You know, they love playing hard for Terry Collins. And let's not forget, Terry Collins has, has indicated, you know, he he might call it quits in 2017, you know? This might be it for Terry. You know, they the players love playing for him. They, they play hard for him. Yeah. So, I mean, 2017 is going to be a huge year. And I, I'm fairly confident that the front office and Sandy will do what it takes to put a, to put a winner Um out on the field because, you know, the, the Washington Nationals, let's not forget, they, uh, you know, they're all start closing who they traded for this offseason. He's a free agent. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. To keep him, you know, what about Steven Strasburg? Will he be able to come back to full True. health? True. Uh, will they, uh, you know, will Bryce Harper two years away from free agency? <laughs> so that's going to loom large. Future man. <laughs> The New York Mets will be fine moving forward. Um, Ed, I think I think we need to keep you going here. Let, let, can, can I get you back next week and we'll focus more on the the current playoffs? Can can we do that? Uh, absolutely. I'm, absolutely. I'm I'm enjoying this. I'm enjoying this, man. I got I gotta be honest with you. So so next Monday we're gonna talk strictly playoff baseball. How about that? Hey, by the time next Monday rolls around, we uh, might have the uh, going to play in the World Series. There you go. That sounds good to me. There you go. Ed, as always, it's been a pleasure, man. Pleasure. Thanks for having me on, Ray. Yes, sir. And there you have it, everybody. There you have it. Another successful session in the books. Eddie brought the heat, as always. Y'all know what I do. I bring that hot fire like Dylan's lyrics. Do remember, TJ's new podcast is coming. It is on its way. It's getting closer and closer and closer. I will release. I will reveal the release date for that podcast very soon. And also, once again, do remember the NBA preview this Thursday. The NBA preview, the haves and have-nots, will be this Thursday. Tune in. You heard? Until next time, I'm out of here.